The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome. I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. As the country reconsiders a return to the workplace, many are personally and professionally re-examining the pros and cons of remote versus on-site work. One reality that has received too little attention is the increase in workplace harassment in the remote workplace. Our guest today is Kolpana Kotiko, a partner at Cohen Milstein in the Civil Rights and Employment Group. A true expert, she will address how and why workplace harassment found its way into the remote workplace, which for many meant being harassed in their home during the pandemic. Kopina will define and compare workplace harassment and virtual workplace harassment. She'll consider recent findings from two surveys examining virtual harassment during the pandemic. We'll be asking her who the targets were, particularly when there were no witnesses and no bystanders. Importantly, she's going to draw upon her expertise to discuss what types of steps can companies take to ensure the safety, equality, mental and physical health of all employees, whether they're working virtually or in the office? As a partner at the National Civil Rights Law Firm of Cohen, Milstein, Sellers & Toll, Kopana is a member of the firm's Civil Rights and Employment Practice Group. She is the chair of the firm's Hiring and Diversity Committee. She represents victims of discrimination, including systemic discrimination in class action cases. She co-authored the Inclusion Rider, a tool for ensuring diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in hiring and production by studios, production companies, artists, and more. Currently, she represents female sales employees in a number of important cases. Kolpana Kodakal it is a privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let's start. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the, the clarification on this. How would you define workplace harassment? Yeah, I think that's really a foundational question. And I would describe workplace harassment as unwelcome conduct. Unwelcome conduct that's based on race or color or religion or sex. And sex includes sexual orientation. It includes gender identity. It includes pregnancy. So any kind of protected category. If you face unwelcome conduct based on one of those protected characteristics and enduring that conduct becomes a condition of your employment, or the conduct is what we would describe as severe or pervasive, such that your work environment becomes intimidating or hostile, that is workplace harassment. It could be, you know, as, um, as significant as, as touching, 
but it needn't rise to that level. And that, of course, brings us to the topic of conversation today. It might be jokes. It might be slurs or name-calling. It might be intimidation. Um, there are lots of different ways that people can experience um, harassment in the workplace. So once it became, and what we're looking at, virtual workplace harassment, do you think it happened more in emails, texts, or in Zoom calls? What's your sense? Was it the same type of intimidation um, and, you know, um, commenting as it was in the workplace? Or is there some quality that's somewhat different? Yeah, I think that the virtual workplace created um, potentially greater vulnerability to harassment, created preconditions that made workplace harassment easier to perpetrate, easier to get away with, harder to complain about. Um, And I think that's partially a function of the blurring that has really defined the last 18 months for so many of us working from home. Um, you know, in our personal spaces, but engaging with work at the same time in meetings and on telephone calls. You know, I think the use of um, of the various platforms that have allowed us to continue to work over the last 18 months with their capacity for private chat functions, the way in which, you know, we have resorted to using our cell phones and text messages to conduct work in a way that we didn't when we were all in offices together. I think that that blurring really has made um, our home offices more vulnerable to problematic workplace behavior than perhaps our workplaces were. You know, it's what you're saying really resonates with um, the results of those studies that that um, I'm sure you know and that I've read about. And when people talk to me as a therapist, they really are talking about feeling more exposed. That is, mm-hmm. it was interesting over the course of the pandemic, Copener, I saw people go from showing their actual backgrounds of their home to they were in a different country every time I saw them or they had changed the background and it it became a way to protect exposure. Women in particular had such a blurring, as you say it, because their children were on Zoom. Their children wanted them to be with them. On the other hand, they were trying to hold on to some professional stance. So the strain and stress of that was very difficult. And then if you add a manager who's anxious and keeps checking in, I mean, that really is a recipe for tremendous stress. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I can just speak from my own experience as a mom of two young kids and, you know, one who has sort of gotten through a busy professional life with my house perhaps not looking particularly pristine, right? And I have been able to keep that sort of behind a curtain, but obviously we're in the workplace now in our own homes. I think that that's come up a lot in particular, and there have been some really interesting articles documenting the kind of difficulty with code switching that that African Americans have had to undertake, particularly last summer when, you know, everything was laid so raw by the uprisings and the reckoning associated with George Floyd's murder. And, you know, homes have been safe places. They've been places for folks from historically underrepresented backgrounds to not have to put on a mask, to not have to code switch. And suddenly 
we were inviting our bosses and our colleagues into our homes in a way that was really, I think your, your word exposing is exactly the, the right one. And I mean, I also think, you know, it was both anxious managers checking in, but also this recognition that people who have been able to get away with bad workplace behavior found um, more more ready pathways to perpetrate that behavior during the pandemic using chat functions and text messages um, and comments in a way that were um, that that took us far past the professional into the personal and into the harassing, right? That's where the lines begin to blur. Well, one of the studies um, by Project Include, I think it is, um, mentioned that particularly for um, LGBTQ women um, who might not have wanted their private and personal sexual preferences known, there was, a, again, an exposure and a disclosure that was then used against them. That was true with cultures, religions. You know, people soar into each other's worlds. And some people, as we said, you with the children and most people who had families, were so busy trying to get everybody to do things. I don't think at times they realized what was being exposed. But the sad part and the troubling part, even maybe from a legal point of view, is when that becomes um, material to be used by a predator, to be used to mm-hmm. harass someone. And, you know, that the, mm-hmm. the more I read, the more I was excited about you coming on because I kept thinking somewhere I had read that people tend to minimize the the extent of abuse that they're receiving. Victims tend to be embarrassed about being victims. They sort of um, take on the projection. So, Kalpana, one of the things that they would say to themselves is, oh, this is really, how, how big a deal is this? And they tolerate it. And their lack of response and no distinguishing way or no specific vehicle to report it leaves the predator or the harasser in a position to up the ante. So it get, gets worse. So it, it becomes yeah. such a difficult cycle. And I think you would know best. Do you think as we sit now, both in terms of the workplace, the on-site workplace and the virtual workplace, that the average person a woman who's experiencing sexism, someone who's experiencing racism, do they usually not report it? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think that we know that a fraction of workplace harassment gets reported. Um, and, And I think that that is true for a lot of reasons. People fear retaliation. They don't have what I would describe as the luxury of being able to um, risk their job in order to take on the system, right? Often people face harassment, not by a kind of co-equal colleague, but by somebody with power over their workplace. That is, you know, one of the, the, the pieces of this that is so important is the power dynamic associated with the process and the reality of harassment. And, and I think, I mean, this, this, I think goes straight to your area of expertise, Suzanne, but I, I really think that that can, um, 
can give rise to those feelings of shame, right? And the combination of shame and of being pragmatic about your job and your need to keep it um, and the, you know, the way in which it can escalate in a way that may give rise to fear about your safety. And then I would also argue, as you've just as you've just, you know, alluded to kind of problematic or inadequate reporting mechanisms, that combination of factors um, can, I think, absolutely contribute to the underreporting of harassment. Um, the other dimension of this is the, the feeling of isolation and the way in which harassment both gives rise to shame and gives rise to deepening isolation for the person who has been or is being harassed, they feel like they're alone. Um, And all of those things can make it difficult for people to feel like they can come forward um, to report the harassment that they're experiencing. It's so, it's so upsetting, right? I mean, I can talk about it in this very kind of clinical and dispassionate way, but when I think about what, Um, what women, what people of color, what members of the LGBTQ community or disabled individuals, often people with intersecting layers of um, of underrepresentation. You know, we know that women of color, for example, um, experience these issues in a different way, for example, than white women. When When I think about the way that this has made an already nearly impossible time for, um, for American workers, for workers around the world, that much harder, that much more intolerable, it really is, um, it is so deeply upsetting. It's so deeply upsetting. Women of color, there's a recent article that said, are thinking twice about going back to the workplace. They don't want to be the established black person. You know, it speaks very much to the idea of black fatigue. They don't want to help people understand racism. So for them, being home had a little bit of a reprieve but then when you when you realize that someone's being harassed at home, even if they share it with coworkers, the coworkers get frightened too. Everybody sort of starts to share the the impact of the harassment. The problem, and you mentioned bystanders in that article, is it's very difficult to be a bystander unless you somehow get support for it or know how to do that. I was wondering if you can speak to that a little. How would we even train a bystander in a workplace to help a coworker? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of really important and established work done around bystander training. I think there are a couple of different pieces of it in the remote setting. You are right. Where it, where there is a further further isolating, let me say it differently, where the mechanism for harassment is um, is definitionally isolated, right? Whether it's text or you know chats or comments on one on one zooms, um, you know, I think it is hard for somebody has to then take an extra step to tell somebody else that they're experiencing this, right? In order mm-hmm. for someone to be a bystander. It's not the same kind of kind of bystander definition that we've thought about where you're standing right there as it's happening. And so, you know, for a person who finds themselves on the end, on the receiving end of a report of, of harassment, uh, that person has a couple of different roles to play. 
One is to support the person who's going through the harassment, right, to, to mm-hmm. validate their feelings and their experiences, to hear them. And then the second is to very carefully, right, this is the trickiest part of it, figure out whether that person and how that person can report what they've gone through or whether that bystander is empowered by the person who's been through the harassment to play that reporting role. Um, And, you know, fundamentally, it is this is an issue of workplace culture. And so if it's happening to one person, it may be happening to others. If there is a single person perpetrating it, there is a question of whether there is a broader permissiveness in the culture of that workplace that allows for that behavior to continue. And the only way to get a handle on it truly is, um, is through, is through reporting and, um, and the infrastructure that should be in place. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit more a little later, but back to the bystander, the bystander has to, you know, figure out whether they can work with the person who has been harassed to go through that reporting process while, mm-hmm. you know, really honoring the wishes and needs of the person who's been harassed. The last thing that they need is to be sort of victimized all over again by feeling like they have no agency, right, having the, the reporting process taken out of their hands. There are a lot of, um, one sort of further point on this, there are a lot of workplace Policies that provide for mandatory reporting above a certain level of of management. And that is, I think, a dimension that is um, an important piece of this for people who are senior. Um, That, you know, you are in a place to have an impact on the overall workplace culture and and maybe a mandatory reporter if you know about harassment. I'll say one last thing, Suzanne, which is that I don't think most workplaces offer bystander training. It has to be done correctly and sensitively, and it, it requires a degree of nuance and very skilled training. And um, I don't think that most workplaces, certainly not kind of the smaller and medium-sized workplaces, have really reckoned with the importance of that issue in creating a safe workplace culture. So, I mean, it, more of that, please. We need more of that. Well, one example that came to mind when I was thinking about bystanders. A long time ago, we did a show on trying to reduce sexual harassment on campus. And the one interesting aspect, Kalpana, of the training was they realized no young man was going to go up to the football quarterback if he was the harasser and take him on. So the way they trained it is always two bystanders. Two bystanders would confront And as a result, the support of two against one, two people saying to the fraternity guy, hey, someone's towing your car to get him away from the woman or something else to divert his attention, gave them the strength to be the bystander. So they had much better success supporting the bystander being the bystander. And it's remained in my mind as something that I don't know how it would be incorporated in the workplace. But I do know the other thing you said is true. Over the years, as people report harassment, if they get a note from someone in that company saying, I know what's going on, I'm with you, I'm thinking about you, that goes a long way. That's not enough. And we need to talk about more today, as we will. But you're so right in that isolation is a part of the trauma of being harassed or abused in any way. Absolutely. I I think that isolation and shame go hand in hand. Um, And, 
you know, a sense that you are alone or that you perhaps have done something wrong to invite this behavior, even if you rationally know that that's not the case. Right. Um, I, I think that we know that from trauma victims, right, that and, right. and from victims of sexual violence, that they um, that they have to wrestle for a long time with this internalized um, sense uh, you know, internalized rape culture, right? That mm-hmm. that the victim has somehow brought this conduct on. And that is a societal failure, right, that, that manifests in individual victims. But we have to take those issues um, on at a, at a much more systemic level. And bystander training is certainly part of that, right? And, mm-hmm. and I think your point of a victim feeling seen or heard of somebody acknowledging what they are going through can help to diffuse some of that internalized um, shame and isolation. But, but as you say, of course, it's not nearly enough, right? We have to actually then solve the underlying failure, the underlying problem that has led to, you know, this individual being in the situation that, that he or she or they is in. Um, that's a huge deal. But, but I do think that, so last, last sort of reflection on that, one of the things that the resurgence of the Me Too movement created space for was um, a shorthand that allowed victims to see each other, right, to break through that isolation. Um, and that is, I mean, there's no way to overstate the importance of that for destigmatizing mm-hmm. their experiences. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly true. And we need similar, and we hope we got similar support from Black Lives Matter and even yeah. some of the real, you know, the push for the LGBTQ plus, plus group. That is, at least you feel you're not alone. One of the questions that I'll be asking on the other side of the break is, so do we think this was all there or mm-hmm. was the chronic unending anxiety fostered by a a lethal pandemic, really something that turned the volume up on everyone. When I think of predators, sometimes you can think of predators in terms of dysregulation. The more dysregulated, the more dangerous. The most dysregulated person in the room is the most dangerous person in the room. So some people can't mm-hmm. regulate. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dysregulated. They're somewhat dangerous. Perhaps they became more harassing. And for our victims, and people never want to be called victims. They want to be called survivors. But for those who were yep. enduring this, if I have two little ones, I'm trying to deal with the job. They keep on calling me. My husband's on another computer. The house is in shambles. You know what we're going to do, try to do takeout. Who knows what we're eating. I don't even want to think about the harassment. It's one more burden, much less who I go to, to, to report it. Maybe some, maybe we really did escalate it during the pandemic because of everybody's situation, but we also dropped the avenues and the possibilities because the victims were just so overwhelmed could they bring up a legal suit? Could they hire a lawyer? You know, people were sort of just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, I would argue that it's probably a combination of both. Okay. Um, and, 
also a function of the new pathways that were created that were um, were low friction, so to speak. It, it's not um, it's not that hard, or in some ways, maybe it's not harder to send a chat that is problematic through you know the Zoom chat function or whatever other you know program mm-hmm. you're using as opposed to walking into somebody's office into their physical space and delivering that same comment. And yeah. so as those, as the, as some of the friction or the barriers um, uh, were eased a little bit because of the nature of remote work, I think new pathways were developed for this behavior to, to go on. So that's, okay. that's one part of it. I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to have to stop. Let me just apologize for a minute. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back on the other side. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're we're here with Kopana Katago, and she is a national civil rights lawyer. She works for the firm of Milstein, Sellers, and Toll. She's a member of the Civil Rights and Employment Practice and is their chair of the firm's Hiring and Diversity Committee. She's helping us look closely at the increase of workplace harassment during the pandemic, particularly for those working remotely and from home. Stay with us. Much more to come. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input, too. Listen for Bravehearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are 
listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're with Kopana Katagal. She is a partner at the national civil rights law firm Cohen, Milstein, Sellers and Toll. She's really helping us look closely at what two surveys found, and that is an increase in workplace harassment in the remote workplace, a place that many people were working in during this pandemic. And one of the things I said to Kopana before the break is, that I had read that when, as a psychologist, I'm always thinking about, well, what what prompts a predator? What causes someone in, in an office to take a, take a jab at a female employee or to put her down because her child walked across from the, the behind her when she was working or in some way to take a jab at um, an LGBTQ um person who's now exposed because their home situation is more revealing than they ever were revealing in the workplace. And one of the things, Kopana, that I had read was, and this sort of makes sense when I think about families and harassment in the families, is that if you are someone who worked in a harassing type culture, you bring that with you to the next workplace. If you worked for Mm -hmm. a man or a woman who was particularly offensive and abusive and got away with it in terms of the setting you worked in, then there's a tendency, even if you unconsciously registered it, that it somehow became more norm for you. And the chances of you either initiating it or joining in with others who were doing it might increase. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me, right? I mean, again, I think this is I think this is really in your area of expertise, Suzanne, but I certainly think about the way in which those who have been abused, you know, in their homes as children are more likely to become abusers themselves and the way that that is, you know, imprints on their on their psychology. I certainly think that there is a growing body of evidence um that survivors face the ongoing effects of workplace harassment throughout their careers, right? Even when they change jobs, they're more likely to change jobs, you know, before they otherwise would have. They feel the impacts of that harassment in a way that kind of ripples through their careers. Um, and so that does it doesn't surprise me, right? We carry those pain, that pain, that trauma, that insecurity with us from um, from one job to the next, from one workplace into the next. And and these are fundamentally, um, you know, they are power dynamics and complicated interpersonal relationships. And so the way that um, that humans work, it, it it is not at all surprising to me, right? Mm. That that there are ongoing ripple effects associated with um, with whether you're a harasser or have been a, a victim or survivor of harassment, how that implicates your next professional setting mm. and your personal life as well. Now, another, another thing I wondered about, and I wondered if you had any evidence of this, was that in the, in the survey done by Project Include, um, 
One of the things that was uncovered that was that 23% of the re- respondents who were 50 years or older experienced increased age-based harassment or hostility mm-hmm. working from home. Mm-hmm. So given ageism has come up both in the shows we've done and in terms of patients, I wondered if there was an attempt to have people retire, and there were more retirements during pandemic than previously, and when people didn't do that, if they became targets of harassment in some way, did have you read about that or experienced that with any clients or in any group that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I think that where we feel insecure economically, right, where people are worried about the success of their businesses, um, you know, where people are, and and you can imagine, right, people were terrified 18 months ago about whether Mm. their businesses would survive or not. And in those settings, um, it is absolutely true that that age-based harassment becomes more significant, right, because people are looking at where they can trim They're trying to figure out where they can economize and who should be on their way out. And um, and you can see how age-based harassment would flow naturally from that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, I do do think that one of the impacts of economic insecurity or uncertainty is age harassment. There's no question about that. And there's nothing um, more obvious about this last 18 months than the fact that so many workplaces were terrified, right? Terrified about their yep. survival. Um, and, and I would argue that age-based harassment is likely a function of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mm-hmm. think it's also, it's certainly I think there's reason to think that, that there are other drivers of it. Um, the visibility, the way in which we're all looking at each other on screens all the time. There's been a lot of writing about plastic surgery, for example, because we have to look at our faces all day long in a way that we never did. I could mm-hmm. see that some of those appearance-based issues might also give rise to um, to age discrimination, um, in addition to the sort of fundamental underlying in- insecurity um, that has been a systemic cause of, of age discrimination in, in, in other settings. Mm. Okay, so let's go to something else that we mentioned earlier that Ellen Powell talks about. And she says, it's interesting that people were afraid to report, but they weren't afraid to harass. And then she goes Uh on to say, and I really want your input on it, that, well, first of all, she says in terms of um, human resources, they've Uh been groomed to discourage reporting that. Uh-huh. If I'm a person who reports Copania, then I'm a problem. I'm yeah, yeah. And and so the chances of me and it's funny because over the years I've had patients talk about it and I've said, "Is there an HR?" Oh, forget it. They'll say, "Oh, forget it." <laughs> and and it's almost like no, they're they're sort of in with the administration. So yeah, I you know the. HR, her big point is that for as long as HR discourages reporting rather than encouraging reporting, when they start to encourage reporting, she said they just, well, this you wouldn't know, I don't know this. She said they discourage reporting because of liability. But actually, they shoot themselves in the foot with that because the more they discourage the reporting, the greater the problems grow. I think that that is exactly that's exactly right. Um, look, at the end of the day, 
HR has, and, and there's been some really kind of compelling conversations around this that came up during Me Too, you know, at, in the first instance, which is that HR needs to reckon with its role um, in particular workplaces and organizations and systemically, what is the function of HR in a company, mm-hmm. um, reckon with its role as creating an environment that is um, ripe for or vulnerable to workplace harassment. I think there are two ways to think about workplace harassment, right? The first is that it is um, an interaction between individuals, right, where there's somebody perpetrating the harassment and somebody who is surviving or enduring that harassment. But the other way to think about harassment, which is also true, is that there must be a workplace that tolerates or creates the preconditions that make it vulnerable to that harassment being possible. Yes, yes. Um, And there's a lot of terrific scholarship and policy in this space around what are those preconditions? What are the kind of qualities that give rise to a workplace that is more vulnerable to systemic or pervasive harassment? And one of the key drivers of that is HR that has no independence. HR that is ultimately in the pocket of um, the administration or the the ownership of the company um, or the leadership of the company, HR that can't take on um, the process of meaningfully investigating and addressing workplace harassment and other discrimination. And so, yes, if HR is not set up correctly, is not trained properly, is not empowered to take on these issues, views itself as um, as an organ of the leadership of the company rather than a safe place, safe space for workers, then it is part of the problem and not part of the solution. And I right. further agree with the, you know, with the analysis that it really backfires if a company doesn't create space for reporting. That doesn't help the company, it hurts the company in the long run because, you know, this is like a cancer. It bubbles and boils and percolates and ultimately will break through. Um, And when it breaks through as a kind of pervasive and systemic harm, as opposed to um, an individual kind of failure or, um, you know, behavior between two individuals or, you know, an, an individual abuser or harasser that quickly gets nipped in the bud because there is a safe reporting space and a mechanism for investigating and dealing with it. It's so mm-hmm. much worse for the employer to deal with it um, as a systemic matter than it is right. to deal with it as, a, as an individual one-off matter. Well, let me ask you a question, and you don't have to give us the, per- the details, but so one of the things that your bio said was that you, you were, um, you had a, two cases going which involved female sales employees, I think, um, but you mm-hmm. correct me. So in a case like That's that right. that gets to you, does it start out with management saying, okay, you know, we got a problem or does, does it, do the employees gather together and say, we have got to hire someone who addresses civil rights and legal rights and ours are being ignored. How does it usually come to you? When it comes to me, um, I, you know, because I work almost exclusively on behalf of workers, um, typically an employer is not going to seek me out, right? They're going to go to their outside employment council as opposed to somebody like me. When I get involved, it's because they're, because workers have come to me and said, 
something is wrong here. We've experienced something terrible here. And some of them say, we tried to go through the proper channels. We tried to report and we were rebuffed. We tried to handle this in like the responsible initial way and the workplace didn't take us seriously. Um, or I thought I was alone and then it became clear to me that there were others mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is a bigger problem than just me. That's when it comes to me is when somebody recognizes that what they've been subjected to is wrong um, and they are ready to do something about it. Now, so did I, get you it find- I get it when it's a serious problem. Okay, so did was there any different kind of cases that came to you with respect to what we're talking about, a remote harassment, um, things unfolding from the pandemic in terms of people felt like they were demanded, more, more work was demanded from them when they were home, that there was less opportunity to have a separate space, that they were harassed by constant calls with managers. Did you actually get any type of of um, case that came reflecting the the topic we're talking about today, the harassment I am, remote work. I am so I'm so grateful to be in a place where I have not had um, a case come out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I I that's not to say that they don't exist. I know that they do, but I am I'm grateful not to be dealing um, with workers who have been in that situation. Um, A a lot of the cases that I deal with um, really focus on systemic um, harms. So where we can really um, distill from these individual experiences a a policy um, or a set of practices that give rise to an inference of discrimination across the whole company or on behalf of a class. I Mm -hmm. do deal with individual harassment, um, but I am so grateful not to have had um, any of those those claims. Grateful in the sense that I, I think that we know it's out there, and I am hopeful that there are very good attorneys working on behalf of those those victims who have come forward. Um, but I think it is it is so it's it's so depleting and demeaning and demoralizing um, to have to contend with this in the workplace. And I'm I'm anyway I, I have not had um, I have not had a pandemic harassment case. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not had a pandemic case myself. Okay. Now, one of the other things that um, was mentioned in terms of what companies need to do, one was the focus on training managers, not only in terms of diversity, but in terms of hostility and harassment. And when I read this, I thought, yep, this we've seen this all the time. And and one of the, the, the things that Ellen Powell was saying is, it can't be a one-time meeting. That's not going to do anything. Yeah. And, and we know with diversity yeah. training... It, it's an impossibility that doesn't change a culture. But so have you ever um, done any work in terms of um, working with companies in terms of how to train managers in terms of protecting the rights of employees? Yeah. What's what's some of the keys to that? Yeah. I mean, I think Ellen Powell's observation is, is absolutely spot on, which is you can't do this once and think it's done, right? right? You can't engage with these issues as a one-off and think that people, I mean, two, two problems with that. One, 
um, you know, workplace culture isn't changed by kind of one-off incidents. You can't say that this is a priority and it's very important and deal with it once and then never deal with it again, right? <laughs> right People right. can see. Yes. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, that, that we are creating um, inclusive and just and equitable workplaces is work. It is ongoing work. Um, it requires even the best of us to really deeply engage with that work in an ongoing way because our understanding of the way in which these harms manifest has developed. Right. I mean, we I don't think that the language of anti-racism or Black Lives Matter was as nearly as much a part of the parlance, you know, before the pandemic started as it is now. And that is because we have learned um, about what's happening in the lives of our of our black workers and our uh, workers of other historically underrepresented backgrounds. And so we got to be committed to doing it in an ongoing way. That's the first thing. The second thing that I would say is that it is not enough to do sort of quote unquote diversity training if you are not digging more deeply as a workplace into equity, right? And by that, I mean, Are you paying attention to your hiring practices and policies? Are you paying attention to the way that you pay people and promote them? Mm -hmm. Are you paying attention to who is in the C-suite, right? It is a, it's it's a whole portfolio of policies and practices that give rise to a genuinely equitable workplace culture. And harassment is a crucial part of that, but it's only one part of that, right? And so that's one of the things that I speak a lot about in the legal profession, Um, And in other workplace settings, you know, my work in Hollywood, um, for example, you can get one piece of it right. But if you're not continued, um, if you're not continuing to engage with improvement, with ongoing um, attention to these issues, then you're you're not going to you're not going to continue to make progress and you're going to fall behind. I'm thinking of some examples that were given that. Why is it that? um, uh a person of color doesn't get the Friday off that other people are getting? Or why is it that there are certain perks that certain people get that other people will never get? So it's, you know, it's divisive and it's there. And uh, as you're saying, if it's ignored, it can't end up being a viable workplace. It just can't. That's right. That is, it can't. That's how toxicity sort of permeates through and ultimately, it is on leadership, right, to get it right. Yep. It's on leadership mm-hmm. to place a price. You know, we we ask survivors, I mean, just to go back to harassment for a moment as the kind of front and center example, we ask survivors to do so much, right? We ask them to endure this behavior. We ask them to keep working. We ask them to be brave enough to report, to put their story out there, to make themselves vulnerable, to process the trauma. We ask them to do all of this stuff. Um, but the work of getting to a genuinely equitable workplace is n- not the load that survivors and women and people of color should bear, right? It is for those with privilege and those in leadership to do that work, and it has to be ongoing. It's exactly right. You know, we're just about out of time. Um, I'm going to thank you, Kopina. And I want to ask, do you want to give our listeners who are both national and international a take-home message regarding this topic of harassment uh, in a time of the pandemic with so much remote work? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I was jotting down notes on my take-home message, and I, I gave a little bit of a way of it away just now. I, I think good. we place so much emphasis on the experience of survivors, as we should, right? We should listen to them and honor them and hear them and create the space for them. Um, but at the end of the day, these are systemic issues, and they are in need of systemic solutions. And so I would ask, your listeners, particularly those who are in leadership, those who are in power, those who think about these issues in their own workplaces, to engage with them to create really genuinely equitable workplaces, to ask the question about whether the harassment policy is sufficiently robust and what is HR doing to ensure that there's space for complaints. I want to ask those with power to step up and do something with that power to make their workplaces more equitable. Terrific. I want to thank you, Kopina, for coming on, for the work you do for so many. You certainly have taken us a step in terms of addressing the inequities and making for safer workplaces, whether they're virtual or in the work actual work situation. Thank you again for what you do and for being our guest today. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, this show and any prior show can be heard as a podcast. By 6 p.m. Eastern, this will be a podcast on all of the platforms, on the app of your iPhone, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon Audible, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeart, Alexa. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.